Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. formidable weapons was the Macuahuito. It was a stout stick or club, about three and a half feet long, set with a double row of blades made of the stone called itztli, as sharp as razors. The warrior carried this terrible weapon attached to his wrist by a thong, and instances of a horse being disemboweled or even decapitated at a single blow are given by many early writers. The blades were quickly dulled, but even then such a weapon wielded by a strong man was a fearsome thing. Their darts, which are so frequently mentioned, were short lances, whose points were tipped with bone or copper, or simply hardened in the fire. As marksmen, the Mexican bowmen were marvellously quick and accurate. Hernán Cortés, second letter to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. I have started each of the episodes in this series so far with some sort of abstract introduction. Today I'm just going to bring you a short roundup of some relevant news stories I've seen over the last few months. First up, I managed to research and produce last episode without noticing that a few days before it came out we had reached the 500th anniversary of Cortés's foundation of Veracruz. We were almost covering events on exactly the same day, 500 years later. Considering to make the episode, I spent quite a lot of time reading the source material, a lot of which included dates. I don't quite know how I missed that. But anyway, it's a nice coincidence, and makes the series especially topical. Now a few episodes ago, I mentioned how the conquest still very much matters to a lot of people. It still has relevance today. Well, as if to prove my point, soon after I released that episode, the recently elected President of Mexico made a request for a formal apology for the conquest and the colonial era from the nation of Spain. The Spaniards have ruled that out, and the issue seems to have died down for now but it does show how much feeling the conquest still carries. Another conquest-related piece of news that came out a few months ago was the publication of research conducted by scientists at UCL in London. They believe that the conquest of the Americas may have had such an impact that it actually altered global temperatures. The global warming of today is caused 
by rising levels of carbon dioxide. Plants help convert carbon dioxide into oxygen, and thus can stop and even reverse the process. The researchers believe that the Americas were intensely farmed before the Europeans arrived. When the Europeans did arrive, the population fell dramatically, and the Europeans weren't able to bring in enough people to work all that land. It soon reverted to wilderness, and the increased number of plants absorbed more carbon dioxide, thus creating a kind of anti-global warming. It's long been known that there was a cool period in the 1500s after the conquests happened. To my knowledge, however, this is the first time that the conquest of the Americas and the dramatic dying off of the native population has been cited as a possible cause. I haven't read the study. I'm not a scientist either, so I can't say how much weight it holds. But the fact that this idea could even be considered shows just how dramatic the events were, and how much of an impact they had. Tying nicely into that, the belief that parts of the Americas reverted to a more wild state due to the conquest is borne out by another piece of research done last year. In the episode on the Amazon, we saw how archaeologists are starting to demonstrate that rather than being a pristine wilderness, Parts of it, at least, were once populated and cultivated. This new research provides the strongest evidence so far that a similar thing can probably be said for the jungles of Peten province in northern Guatemala. We have always known that this was an important part of the Maya world. There are several ruins of important cities there, including the famous Tikal and El Mirador, by using this new technology and flying over in a plane, the researchers were able to scan the forest and see what the ground looked like underneath. Just to be clear, we're talking about an enormous and remote area covered by thick jungle. The archaeologists surveyed over 800 square miles. It seems that it was a very different place, however, during the Maya period. They discovered the ruins of more than 60,000 previously unknown buildings, ranging from whole villages with small houses right up to great fortresses. It's thought that overall this could have supported over a million people. There were highways and causeways linking the settlements and what looked like great pyramids. Another piece of work done by archaeologists recently relates directly to the conquest of the Aztec. Now a bit later in the story, from where we are now, a relatively small battle and defeat for the Spaniards will take place in a town called Zultepec. The surviving Spaniards were sacrificed and dismembered. At first glance this looks like senseless brutality, but recent excavations seem to have led the archaeologists to believe that this is perhaps more evidence for the theory we discussed last week, that for the Aztec, the spiritual world of the deities and the physical world they inhabited were not separate, and that the Spaniards were possibly playing the role of mythical beings, just as the Hawaiians were recreating their myth by killing Captain Cook. It seems that these Spaniards 
were killed in ways which mirrored Aztec myths. The article didn't really provide any specifics, but I thought it was interesting and relevant. Also interesting was the list of people who filled the Spanish ranks during the battle. There were 15 male Spaniards, and accompanying them were 50 women and 10 children. There were also 45 Cuban soldiers, that is, Tainos and Africans, as well as 350 indigenous Mexican allies. It goes to show just how much of a contribution the native Mexicans who the Spanish had on side made to the conquest, and also that although it was the Spanish calling the shots, it was a pretty multicultural affair. I can't help but wonder what an enslaved African from today's Nigeria or Ivory Coast, taken to Cuba and then brought to Mexico to fight against the Aztec Empire, thought of all this. Their stories would be fascinating. Another piece of news I've read recently, which doesn't relate directly to Mexico and the conquest, but does relate to the early Spanish Empire, involves Christopher Columbus, or more specifically one of his sons. Hernando Colón was born when Christopher was still in Spain, trying to win support for his first planned trip. He was born of an affair, not of marriage, and so this limited his career and inheritance options. Hernando obviously had some of his father's desire to tackle enormous tasks, and looking at his options, he decided that the job he would devote his life to would be to collect every book in the world. Even at this time when printing was first becoming a thing, this was an ambitious task. If he had done it, then it probably would have been more impressive than what his father had achieved. He did succeed in collecting a great many, and to keep track of what he'd found, he decided to create a book of his own, summarising the contents of every book in his library. The library has since been lost, the books dispersed and many gone forever. His catalogue was too fought lost, until it was discovered in Copenhagen just a few weeks ago. This is exciting for all sorts of reasons. There are books we know about, but which are lost, so this will provide a summary, at least giving us a glimpse into their contents. It will also give us a fairly comprehensive list of books in existence at the time, and this will surely include plenty that we had no idea had even existed at all. It will also give us an insight into what people at the time thought was worth writing about, and about how people were adapting to and using the new and revolutionary medium of print. Something which is probably quite relevant, considering that we are in the early days of our own revolutionary new communication system, the internet. Work is underway to digitalise and translate Anando's book of summaries, so hopefully we will discover more about its contents soon. Eventually, the translation of the book will be available to everyone online, but unfortunately, they reckon it will take five to seven years before it's ready. It's apparently almost a foot thick and has over 2,000 pages. The final piece of news I want to bring up before I shut up about all this and carry on with the story is probably the least relevant. It is, though, I think, mildly interesting. 
You've probably seen that every year various organisations announce the results of their studies into world happiness, and some country is named the happiest in the world. Now obviously quantifying happiness is a bit difficult, and pronouncements like this make good headlines, so there's an impetus to promote them, even if, well, I'm not sure how seriously we can take them. They are, however, sort of interesting. This year the polling company Gallup released its findings and found that we are all, globally, more stressed and unhappy. What I think makes it relevant to this podcast, however, is that every one of their top five happiest countries is in Latin America. The happiest is Paraguay, followed by Panama, Guatemala, Mexico and El Salvador. Gallup puts the results down to, quote, a cultural tendency in Latin America to focus on life's positives. I'll leave it to Latin Americans to say whether they think that's an accurate idea or not. Anyway, on with the conquest of Mexico. Around the same time that the Aztec were migrating down from northern Mexico, in the late 1200s, another group were doing the same. The Tlaxcalans spoke a Nahuatl language, like the Aztec, and also like the Aztec at this time. They were a collection of disorganised tribes, rather than a unified state. You may remember them from the ancient Mexico episodes, as the people to the east of the Aztec, who remained unconquered, and who fought against the Aztec in the mysterious Flower Wars. They too ended up on the shores of Lake Texcoco, the lake on which Tenochtitlan was founded. But while a few did choose to settle down there, most split into groups and spread out in different directions. One of these headed east, settled down, and influenced by the organised states of central Mesoamerica, formed their own sedentary government. They founded cities, but their conquest of this territory was not easy. They faced resistance from the peoples already living in the region and the early years of their state were marked by conflict. This would change, however, with the rise of the Aztec Empire. While the Aztec never managed to encroach on their territory, they did encircle them, and in the process created a steady stream of refugees into Tlaxcala. Other Nahuatl groups, Otomi, Saltocana and Pinomes, arrived in large numbers, and were incorporated into the Tlaxcalan state. While the original Tlaxcala people would remain dominant, it became a multi-ethnic state, with its population united in opposition to the Aztec threat. The system of government they set up was a complex one, and there are seemingly conflicting accounts of how it worked exactly. We know that their country was split into four territories, Each of these had its own capital city. Now I have seen an account that says that the Tlaxcala were ruled by a council. Appointment to the council was earned by service to the state, often in the form of war, but also from other types of civil service. While there was a noble class, anyone who served well enough could be a councillor, so social mobility was a thing in Tlaxcala. Most accounts, however, suggest that each of the four territories had a leader of some sort, and in fact, 
The differing responses to the Spanish amongst the leaders forms an important part of most accounts of the conquest, so there must have been some truth in this version of things. The two ideas aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Most Western countries today have a president or prime minister, and a council of sorts in the form of a parliament or congress. By the time the Spanish arrived, however, it seems that the country was ruled by the four leaders of each of the territories. Tlaxcala was located at the eastern edge of the Mexican plateau. The Yucatan and Baja California aside, the main body of Mexico is shaped roughly like an inverted triangle. Along both sides of the country, strips of hot tropical lowlands hug the coast. As you move inland, however, you reach the foothills of the plateau. The hills rise fairly sharply before giving way to the high tableland that forms the heart of the country. In pre-Hispanic times, this was not always the centre of civilization. The Maya were not from here, or the Olmec. However, in the preceding centuries, the largest and most advanced groups generally were found on the plateau, with the Aztec obviously cementing this by invading most of the others from their capital. Cortés's new settlement at Veracruz and his Totonac allies were down on the coastal plain. As he marched westward then, he would have started by cutting his way through thick, hot jungle. He would then start to ascend. He had left 150 men behind to guard Veracruz, but he took with him around 50 Totonac warriors, several hundred Totonac porters and scouts who knew the terrain. The going was tough. Their armour was a burden in the hot and humid climate. Soon they had reached the last Totonac town, today's Jalapa, about halfway up the hills towards the plateau. The climate had become distinctly cooler, and ahead of them the mountain peaks rose imposingly. As they got higher and higher, the weather got worse and worse. Soon they were facing hail, heavy rain and strong winds. Things did not get easier when they reached the plateau at the top. While they no longer had to force themselves up a slope, the land in this region was dry. They had to skirt around a salt lake, and they started to run low on water. Some of the Tainos they had brought over from Cuba to help carry their things died of exposure in the harsh conditions. They found sanctuary in a small town called Zocotlan, today's Zautla. Perhaps it was just the relief of being welcomed there after the difficult journey, but De Castillo says that the whitewashed houses of the town reminded them of the villages back home in Spain. Welcomed they were by the cacique, who fed them and provided them with supplies. He told them more about Tenochtitlan and the power of the Aztec emperor, subjects he knew about as his little state was a tributary of the empire. He had clearly not got the memo about stopping contact with the Spaniards. They stayed in Zocotlan for four days while they recovered. During their time there, they observed the locals and were impressed with how they lived. Even in this far outpost of the empire, there was a sophisticated level of organisation. 
What didn't impress the Spaniards so much, however, was the evidence of human sacrifice. It was everywhere, with bones and skulls being displayed prominently outside the temples. For their part, the people of Zocotlan were confused and intimidated by the horses, guns and cannons of the Spanish. Again, the suggestion comes up in accounts of the conquest, that these people may have seen the Spaniards with all these strange and seemingly powerful things as some sort of deities. It was not long, once they had set off again, before the Spanish encountered a set of fortifications, a huge wall that blocked the route ahead. This was the beginning of Tlaxcalan territory. It would have been a struggle to get past the walls if they had been defended, but apparently there was nobody around. There was nothing to stop them passing through a small gap. A few of Cortez's men are said to have voiced the opinion that perhaps this wasn't the best route to take. These were clearly powerful people, and besides any fear of what lay ahead, perhaps for purely practical reasons, it made sense not to risk alienating them by entering their territory. Maybe they could become useful allies. Cortez was in charge, however, and knowing what we do about his character, was he ever going to do anything but march headlong towards his target? Why the wall was unmanned is puzzling. The Tlaxcalans were certainly aware of the Spaniards' presence. They knew that they were heading in the direction of Tlaxcala, and this was causing a fair amount of debate about how to deal with them. Funnily enough, those who were suspicious of the Spanish were not so because of any fear of the Europeans, but because the Spaniards had been seen talking with the Aztec, first down on the coastline, and more recently, while they stayed in Zocotlan. Being such bitter rivals of the empire, the Tlaxcalans did not want anyone on friendly terms with the Aztec entering their lands. The four territories, while unified, operated with enough autonomy to engage in rivalry and politicking with each other. The power of each one relative to the others grew and shrank at different times. At this point, Tizatlan and Ocotelolco, the eastern and southern territories respectively, were the most powerful. The other two did not have the clout to influence the state significantly at that time. Ocotelolco's ruler was a man named Mashishcatl, while Tizatlan was ruled by Sikotencatl I. Sikotencatl was an old man. According to one source, he was 120, although we can't verify that. And when he later met the Spaniards, he apparently had to have his eyes held open by servants in order just to be able to see them. Because of this, his son, Sikotencatl II, was in charge of much of the day-to-day -day running of the territory. So unbeknownst to the Spanish, as they marched into Tlaxcalan lands, the leadership was discussing what to do about them. Mashish cattle favoured talking to them, while Xicotencatl II believed that these were Aztec allies and needed to be fought. Xicotencatl the Elder is said to have quietly disagreed with his son and actually favoured Mashish Cattle's 
preferred approach. We can't know exactly how this argument played out, but we do know that while Octelolco was the economic powerhouse of Tlaxcala, Tizatlan's power lay in its control of the military. Perhaps this was why Sikotenkatl II's opinion won out, at least at this stage. It was agreed that an army would go out to meet the Spaniards. Rather than attack outright, however, an ambush would be set up and a small number of troops would be put in the Spaniards' path. They would see how the Spanish reacted, aggressively or not, before springing the trap. Interestingly, the men chosen for the initial standoff were not ethnic Tlaxcalans, but Otomi, one of the peoples who had come to Tlaxcala relatively recently. They were known for being fierce warriors. When the Spanish looked up and saw the Otomi ahead of them, Cortes ordered his men forwards. The Otomi started to retreat, but the Spaniards pursued. This was all the evidence they needed. The Europeans were not friendly, so they turned and faced them. Now so far in all the Spanish conquests in the Americas, we have seen them take on numbers far greater than their own. The ratio of casualties has been far from even. This time it was different. The small Otomi force managed to inflict casualties on the Spanish. While more of them were killed than Spaniards, the ratios were much closer. When the main Tlaxcalan army emerged, things were no different. The Tlaxcalans were organised. They had battle formations, and unlike smaller tribal states, which fought basically with militias, they had professional soldiers. They also did not seem to be afraid, even when faced with horses. A fierce battle ensued, before the Tlaxcalans retreated. The Spanish had taken more casualties than they had expected. The next morning, they were again attacked by the Otomi, this time in much greater numbers, and the Spanish spent the whole day trying to keep their formation, as waves and waves attacked. At the end of the day, they retreated, and the Spanish found refuge on an old pyramid nearby. The next battle took place two days later. This army was the largest so far, and was led by Zico Tencatl himself. This was pretty much a repeat of the previous two battles, on a larger scale. The Spaniards held their position, but suffered heavy losses before the attack stopped at the end of a day. I have seen it written that by the end of these battles, 20% of the Spanish army had been killed. If things had continued, they surely would have been defeated after a few more battles. Things didn't continue, however. Word came to Zico Tencatl that he should withdraw the army. They were going to talk. He was not happy about this, and in fact, he determined to ignore the orders. When the contingent of soldiers from Ocotelolco decided to leave, however, he had no choice. The Spanish must have been relieved. They knew how close they had come to destruction. This could have been the end of the conquest of Mexico. Why then wasn't it? Despite the high rate of casualties that they themselves were facing, this decision was clearly made for political reasons. 
with Shiko Tenkatsu away from the decision-making process while commanding the troops. There was nobody of his status arguing for war. The rivalry between Tizatlan and Okotelolko meant that undermining Shiko Tenkatsu's success was very important to Mashishkatsu. He could not have Shiko Tenkatsu returning a triumphant war hero. If he could play the diplomatic game, and perhaps even use these strange newcomers against the Aztec, well then he could become the hero. The Spanish were invited to meet the Tlaxcalan leadership. They were greeted by the elder Chico Tencatl and Mashishcatl, and they were made their guests. Although they were in agreement about how to approach the Spanish, the rivalry between the two rulers was still strong. Each one never let the other spend time alone with Cortes, and Cortes was shuffled between their two palaces. During this time, they discussed the political situation in Mesoamerica with him, and it soon became apparent that Tlaxcala's and Cortes's goals aligned, just as they had with the Totonac. They both wanted to see the Aztec defeated. Cortes, of course, wanted to conquer everything, and this meant defeating the Aztec. The Tlaxcala wanted to defeat their bitter enemies. An alliance was formed, and the two Tlaxcalan rulers gave daughters to cement it. Chico Tencatl, the elder's daughter, was married to de Alvarado, while Cortes chose to marry Mashishcatl's daughter to Juan Velázquez de León, perhaps in a bid to deal with his own internal rivalries. De Leon was a relative of Governor Velázquez in Cuba, and as such, if Cortés was to face a rebellion from Velázquez loyalists, then De Leon would probably be the leader. Safe among new friends, Cortés set about planning his next move. To the west beyond Tlaxcalan borders, and back in Aztec territory, lay the city of Cholula. Cholula was the Aztec Empire's second city, it had the largest population outside Tenochtitlan, but its importance went deeper than that. It was the religious capital of Mesoamerica. At its heart was the Great Pyramid, one of the largest in the Americas, the world even. The Aztec emperors came here to be crowned. Who knows if this is true, but the city was said to have had a total of 365 temples. The story goes that Cortes would later build a church on the remains of each one, and even today the city is known for having a church for every day of the year. The city's location made it an important centre of trade, and its population and religious significance made it one of Mesoamerica's most important artistic centres. Cholula forced Cortes to make a decision. He could avoid it, on his way to Tenochtitlan, but if he did, and things turned hostile with the Aztec, then he would be stuck with a large, dangerous outpost behind him. Although he had scuppered his ships, the coast of Veracruz was where any possible future connection with the outside world would come, and it was there that he had founded his first settlement. Avoiding Cholula would mean that it stood between him and the coast, and he did not have a clear line there. Cortes decided to go to Cholula. 
But what approach should he take when he got there? How would Moctezuma react to him marching into Aztec territory, the second city, no less, after disobeying the request to leave, and, what's more, accompanied by Tlaxcalan enemies? Would Cortes once again try a diplomatic approach, or had he given up with that? What exactly happened in Cholula is unclear. We know how it ended up, but the course of events that led there differs from account to account. We also don't know what Cortes was thinking during the events, so we don't know what his intentions had been before he arrived in the city. He does give an account of things in one of his letters back to Spain, but seeing as it was written after the fact, and with the intention of making himself look good, I'm not sure how much stock we can put in it. The most straightforward version of events has the Spaniards arriving in Cholula, and being allowed in but not welcomed. Just as the Aztec had back on the coast, they seem to have hoped that by ignoring the Spanish and refusing to engage with them, they would go away. Soon, however, it emerged that secretly they were planning to betray them, and La Malinche, with her command of the language, overheard a plan to murder the Spaniards while they slept. She informed Cortes of this, and he gathered the local leaders, nobles and priests in the main square to discuss things. This version paints the Spanish as innocent, and merely responding to Cholulan treachery. Another story places the blame on the Tlaxcalans. Cholula was so close to their territory that while the Aztec as a whole were their enemies, the Cholulans in particular were constant opponents. The Tlaxcalans then pushed for Cortes to take the route through Cholula, and once there they pushed things into conflict. Munoz Camargo, who wrote a history of Tlaxcala about 60 years after the conquest, says that the Tlaxcalans had sent an envoy ahead and that the Cholulans had murdered him. This justified their pushing Cortes towards confrontation and their later actions. He is the only one who tells this story, however. Of course, another interpretation is that Cortes had by this point simply made up his mind. Up until now, he had been hedging his bets with the Aztec, trying to intimidate them, but also pushing for diplomacy. Perhaps he decided that this wasn't getting any results. Whatever the motivations and actions of the various parties, they ended up with the leadership of Cholula in the square, being addressed by Cortes, while his men subtly blocked off the square's exits. Suddenly, Cortes gave the order. His men set about massacring the largely unarmed Cholulans. The Tlaxcalans had not been allowed into the city due to their historic hostility, so they continued the violence outside, attacking ordinary people. Estimates vary. Some say that 3,000 were killed, while others say 30,000. The leadership was completely destroyed, and Cortes pick new puppet rulers to take their place. With that, Cholula was now a Spanish vassal, not an Aztec one. With this all done, Cortes did not stay long. The next stop was Tenochtitlan itself. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. 
For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M A X S E R J E A N T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening.